It's good to see all of you this morning and to be with you. Uh, it, is a, it is always a joy and a privilege to proclaim God's Word, but especially at this time as, as your leadership is discerning uh, God's guidance in this next uh, season. And uh, as, let's, let's pray together for God's uh, clear direction in that process, but as part of that process, uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here and offer God's Word and proclaim that to you this morning. Um, I'm not, as, as McCartney has already shared, there was a, I think a notice had gone out a little bit about my background, so I won't really tell you a whole lot other than just to uh, briefly just say my wife, Jen, yes, she's here with me. We've been married now almost 28 years. Uh, we've been empty nesters now for two years, and um, our uh, youngest son is at, uh, a junior at Boston College. My uh, middle son is graduating in the spring of, at the University of Wisconsin, and we have our oldest son, who's a maritime engineer on a ship someplace off the coast of Africa or in the Persian Gulf. I have no idea where he is right now, but he's over there somewhere. Um, and uh, I have uh, uh, been ordained in the PCA since uh, 2008, um, spent 10 years pastoring a church in Sunnyside, Queens, and uh, over the last almost year and a half or so, uh, did an interim transitional pastoral role in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, so I know a little bit about the experience that you are heading into in this particular season of your church's life. Um, The climate may be a tad different from Madison in here, uh, but there are other similarities. So I'm I'm in prayer for you and uh, pray for me and pray for your leadership uh, as we, uh, as all of us seek God's direction. This morning, uh, we are looking at a uh, passage from John chapter 2. It is a passage that, um, whether you grew up in the church or been around Christianity or not, uh, is likely a passage you would be familiar with. Um, and so as we, as we look at the first 11 verses this morning of chapter 2, right before we do that, before I read that, will you pray with me just one more time and ask that God might meet with us and speak to us, even in a passage that might be very familiar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask now that you would meet with us here in this place. Jesus, as the one who has the words of eternal life, it is you that ultimately we need to hear from. We do not need to hear from the one speaking into the mic. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would work with me, work around me, work in spite of me, whatever is necessary, but that your word might get through that our hearts and our lives might be changed, and that we might know that when we leave this place, we have genuinely met with the eternal word of life. Jesus, we pray these things for your sake. Amen. Well, I I recently came across a very depressing poll uh, about Christians that was released last year. That revealed a considerable disconnect between how so-called Christians view themselves, often a very, very positive light, (laughs) and how non-Christians view Christians, often, as you might not be surprised, in not quite so positive a light. (laughs) However, the one thing that I found most interesting and actually sad in this particular poll is that of all the specific characteristics that were listed to describe Christians, joy 
was not one of them. Not even Christians themselves listed joy in their top 10 list of characteristics describing themselves. And yet, between the Old and the New Testaments, there are nearly 100 commands, exhortations for God's people to rejoice. And in the New Testament, when Paul is thinking and describing the characteristics of one who has been changed by the very Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, the second thing that he lists is joy. In other words, joy was intended to be a prevalent posture towards life, towards this world among those who claim to follow Jesus. And yet the sad reality is that it is a rarity that when the average person on the street is asked to describe the distinctions and impressions of Christianity in general and Christians that they know in particular, that one of the immediate and initial responses is rarely joy. In a passage that I'm about to read, John actually recounts an event that indicates at least in his mind, that that discrepancy simply should not be. Follow along with me now in in John chapter 2. I'll read the first 11 verses. There we read, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they were filled, they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. John begins this passage, first one, on the third day. (laughs) The gospel writers tell us elsewhere that on a third day, John will do that as well, that Jesus rose from the dead. New creation began on the third day. So this is perhaps a subtle note by the gospel writer, John, but it can't be coincidental. And it's not unimportant. John then tells us, okay, on the third day, Jesus and his mother, Mary, and his disciples have all been invited to a wedding in this small town of Cana. 
Cana is about four miles from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And in that day, a wedding celebration would have been the social event of the year. (laughs) All of one's friends and family members from the surrounding area, even all of one's neighbors, the entire community would have been invited to come to what have been a multi-day celebration, often lasting a week or more. (laughs) These people knew how to celebrate. (laughs) And because of that, the bridegroom and his family had a great obligation as they would have been responsible for providing this festival, this party, this feast for their guests. And immediately in verse 3, John introduces us to a serious and potentially devastating situation. The wine runs out. Now, in the Jewish world of this time, wine would have been the primary staple of a celebration like this. Because in that world, wine was associated with celebration and with joy. And so in that day, to have a wedding and not have wine to serve your guests would have been more unthinkable, inconceivable than you and I throwing a birthday party for our kids and not having a birthday cake. (laughs) And so in a culture of shame and honor as this was, to not have wine for your guests was no simple social faux pas. This would have been egregious. And it was such a travesty, in fact, such a social offense, in fact, (laughs) that to fail to provide your guests with either sufficient food or wine like this at a party was actually legal basis for a formal lawsuit. This family, (laughs) and specifically this bridegroom, are therefore facing enormous public disgrace and outrage at being potentially remembered for hosting that disappointing party. And Jesus' mom, Mary, has noticed and simply comes to Jesus in verse 3 and says, they have no wine. Now, immediately we wonder why Mary was the one that brings this up. Maybe she had very close ties to the family. Maybe she had some kind of responsibility, role to play at the party, The text just isn't explicit. But furthermore, why does Mary come to Jesus? By communicating this information to Jesus, she was effectively putting Jesus in the place of the bridegroom, who is the one who bore the responsibility here to take care and provide for his guests. And that's when Jesus responds with a seemingly cold and cryptic response to his mother. When he says in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, although to us that that sounds a bit cold, (laughs) a cold way of addressing your mother, it's actually not as harsh in the original language. There are only two times when we see Jesus directly address his mother in the book of John. It's here. And it's also while he's on the cross. And while he's dying, he's thinking of his mother. And he's concerned for her well-being. 
And he turns to John, he says, John, behold your mother. And he turns to his mother and he says, woman, behold your son. He's taking care of his mother as he talks to her. It's a tender moment. And so the word itself is not, although not necessarily warm and intimate, is not disrespectful whatsoever. Rather, what Jesus is doing here, I think, is establishing and putting boundaries on his unique calling from his heavenly parent, his heavenly father. Elsewhere, Jesus also speaks of his hour. And when he does, he's referring to that time of his death and resurrection and ascension. That is the cosmic redemptive act to which his heavenly father has called him and sent him to do. That's his hour. And so Jesus here is communicating that he will not be pressured or compelled to do anything that's not according to the will of his father. And so his response is less, don't bother me, I'm not going to address this, this is not my problem. (laughs) But rather, that which I do, everything in fact that I will do, both now and the rest of my ministry, will be done in accordance with my father's will as I serve his purposes. And Mary herself, to her credit, in verse 5, is not put off by this, but simply tells the servants, (laughs) do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Now, we could end the sermon right there because that's as good a message as any. When Jesus says to do something, it's a good idea to follow him. (laughs) Do whatever he says. But John continues and shares that at this party in this facility, there are six purification jars between 20 and 30 gallons. And these would have been used by people to ensure that they were ceremonially ceremonially clean. So when they came inside, they probably would have used the water out of a purification jar like this before they ate, after they ate, if they came into contact with anything unclean. And Jesus sees them there and instructs the servants to fill them with water. And they do. In fact, John even adds that they filled them to the brim. When they finish, Jesus says, now take some to the head waiter. And they do. <laughs> and the head waiter at this party would have been the MC of the party. He would have been the host, the maitre d'. He was hired and paid by the bridegroom with the responsibility to keep the celebration going, to ensure that the guests were enjoying themselves but on behalf of the bridegroom. And that's when everything changes. Because when the head waiter tastes what they bring him, it was now wine. And he's astonished. But not because a miracle had just taken place, because the text tells us he didn't know a miracle had just taken place. But he's astonished at the quality of this particular wine that the servants have brought him. And more than that, He's astonished at the timing of the service of such great wine at this point in the celebration. In other words, this must have been some of the finest, fill in the blank, Cabernet, Sauvignon, (laughs) Sherry. Don't know what grapes these were, but it must have been the finest that any human palate had ever tasted. Jen and I, uh, we love to travel, and... um, one of the things we like to do is we enjoy visiting wineries if they're in the area that, that we're visiting. And 
we like to do the whole wine tasting thing. And part of the thing that's fun for us, at least, is, is, is doing the tasting is kind of watching and listening to other people talk as they're doing the tastings. And you just kind of got to wonder, is your palate really that sophisticated? <laughs> To be able to tell the, that, that kind of intricacy in, in each of these different wines. <laughs> Until <laughs> I was once having dinner with a former boss. This was pre-ministry. Many, many years ago, we had only been married a, a year or two. This boss takes me and another co-worker to a fine restaurant. And he immediately sits down. He asks for a wine menu. They bring the wine menu. He peruses it, m- makes an order. They bring a bottle of wine to the table. He The server uncorks it, pours a little bit, he swirls it, takes a sip, and then he's got this look of aghast on his face. And he asked the server, he said, he looked at the bottle and he said, will you please bring me back the wine menu that you showed me? Because the year on the wine menu for that particular wine is not the year that this bottle is. The server goes to get the exact same menu, brings it back, and sure enough, he was right. It was like this big, I mean, everybody, all the, the, the managers, everybody came out of the woodwork to come to profusely apologize to my boss. Uh, they, sure enough, apparently what had happened is they had just recently changed all the menus, except one menu did not get changed. <laughs> and he caught it. His palate was that sophisticated. This is not... The situation here when this particularly amazing wine is served. It is not the first sip on people's lips. In that day, you would start at a celebration like this with your best, the good stuff. You wanted to impress your guests. And after people had a glass of wine, maybe two, and their palate was a little bit dull they wouldn't likely notice as much difference if you then bring out the cheap stuff. (laughs) That's the economically savvy, that's the ingenious way to throw a party. And so the head waiter here is incredulous (laughs) because apparently this bridegroom did things differently. This bridegroom had apparently saved the best for last. My friends, this is exactly how it works in Jesus' kingdom. In God's redemptive economy, he saves the best for last. When you least expect it, Jesus shows up and offers the best. I wonder this morning, perhaps you're here, Perhaps you're here and not yet a, may not yet consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Perhaps you've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time. I wonder if this picture of Jesus fits in your perception of who he is. Or would you have expected, like I might have, <laughs> Jesus to get up and preach a sermon on just being thankful for what you have <laughs> and what you have? How dare you be ungrateful? <laughs> No, when, the, when the wine runs out here, when the party was on the verge of ending in utter failure and disappointment, Jesus intervenes <laughs> to keep it going. But too often, unfortunately, Christianity is seen as something that 
kills your fun and enjoyment of life. But that idea didn't come from Christianity. It didn't come from the God of the Bible. It's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 16, God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's why he bids us all in Psalm 34, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just theoretically know this in your head, but experientially come to understand and know and appreciate that the Lord is good. It's why the psalmist can specifically give rightful recognition to God for all of his good gifts in Psalm 104. When he says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Now, Jesus, like his heavenly father, is no cosmic killjoy, despite what he may be accused of being. In John 10, in fact, Jesus directly contests and refutes that idea and says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, to the brim, abundantly. John 15, he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, far from being a a cosmic killjoy, Jesus invites us into a life of joy. Now, of course, of course, (laughs) this is not an invitation to drunkenness. (laughs) Of course. The fact that we might be afraid that 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 could get communicated (laughs) is actually more revealing about us than it is about Jesus. Jesus, if you recall, was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. But make no mistake about it, Jesus never was drunk. <laughs> he never overate. <laughs> but you don't get that type of a reputation. Living a joyless, cheerless, <laughs> unhealthily pietistic life. And not spending time with others who know how to have a good time. <laughs> now, had we been reading from the beginning of John's gospel we would have already been prepared to fully appreciate and underscore the reality that Jesus' coming absolutely should be associated with joy. In chapter 1, John writes, we have seen his glory. That is Jesus' glory. We have seen it. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here, if you recall in verse 11, he ended this narrative by saying that this was the first of Jesus' signs through which He manifested his glory. John starts off his gospel saying, I'm going to tell you about Jesus and how he manifested his glory. And right here he says, this is the first time that he does it. (laughs) Think about that. Of all the ways that Jesus could have introduced his glory to the world, (laughs) his first was not by walking on water, not calming a storm. His first wasn't healing someone. His first wasn't raising someone from the dead. It was changing water into wine. It was by throwing a celebration. And furthermore, at the end of John's gospel, in chapter 20, he tells us that all these signs that I record here, and he says there's many more, but all these signs, 
I wrote, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus records, excuse me, John records and recounts these events of Jesus, these signs, so that they, his listeners, so that we might believe that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Christ, the Son of God, that is, the Messiah. And according to the prophets, hundreds of years prior to this event, prior to this day, prior to this wedding, they announced a messianic age is coming. It would be as if creation was happening all over again. It was as if it would be a new creation, a time that would be marked out, the prophets said, among other things, by the overflowing of wine. This was a sign that the prophets had said, this day is coming. You will know the Messianic age. In Isaiah 25, it says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of aged wine, well-refined. Amos 9, in the day that the mountains, in that, in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Joel 2, your wine vat shall overflow with oil and with wine. And Jeremiah 31, they shall come and sing aloud They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord our God, over the grain, over the wine, over the oil. The young young women shall rejoice and dance. The young men shall be merry, and I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will give them gladness for sorrow. Sounds like the prophets were saying (laughs) that when the day comes for God to begin to rewrite the script, to initiate redemption, to begin making all things new, to send his Messiah to do the work, it's going to be like a party. (laughs) There's going to be celebration. There's going to be joy. That would be the mark, the proof, the fulfillment that God's work of redemption and recreation had begun. Now, it's important here to note and, and clarify that the fact that Jesus' messianic work of redemption was promised and is marked by joy does not mean or guarantee that you and I will only be happy in this lifetime. There is tragic unrest unfolding before our eyes in places around the world that we are all very familiar with right now. Not to mention the various ways that you and I experience the sad reality of the brokenness of this world in ways closer to home. But the reality is, we still live in a time that theologians refer to as the already and the not yet. We do get genuine tastes of what life will be in the new heavens and the new earth, but the remnants of this fallen world are still being dealt with. So this is not a denial, (laughs) of the remaining brokenness of this life. Nor is this joy simply about avoiding or refusing to engage in the difficult circumstances that come our way in our lifetime. As we live, we remain in a fallen, broken world. And furthermore, the joy that Jesus offers and intends for his followers to experience and to embody to the world around us is not some kind of fluffy, disconnected emotionalism. 
rather the joy that is associated with Jesus's redemptive kingdom agenda. At the core of his gospel is an underlying heart posture that is able to both genuinely hold on to hope in very difficult and sorrowful times, but also able to celebrate over things that are genuinely life-giving gifts that our good creator has intended for us to appreciate and to respond with a festive heart. The healthy birth of a child. (laughs) Celebration. The reunion and reconnecting of family members or friends who have long been separated by time and space. Joy. (laughs) The ringing of a bell on a cancer ward. A wedding. (laughs) Because after all, after all, another greater wedding is actually on our horizon. The ultimate hope of those who come to faith in Jesus Christ is that we are actually now, even now, spiritually betrothed to a greater bridegroom. One who laid down his life for his bride. One who is currently preparing a place for his bride. One who will one day return and According to Revelation, we will celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb. Now, as we come to a close, to be sure, the head waiter was not the only one who was incredulous and astonished by what's happened at this party. Remember just moments earlier, the bridegroom, the situation he was in, the serious disgrace that he was facing, Now, the bridegroom, this bridegroom is going to be remembered, (laughs) but not for being a shamefully poor host, but for being a generous, ingenious host. (laughs) He will be the one to get the credit for this, even though he had absolutely nothing to do with it, except for mistakenly providing the occasion for Jesus the greater bridegroom, to demonstrate his generous sovereignty and grace and kindness. And that's really what we find at the heart of the gospel, isn't it? It's the basis for our ability even now as followers of Jesus to regularly tap into a well of genuine joy regardless of what's happening around us in the world. As one theologian puts it, the only thing that you and I bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. (laughs) Because we do nothing but contribute to the brokenness of of this world in the ways we treat others, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, not to mention how we dismiss and disregard our God and Creator, all that the Bible calls sin. And yet, when we come to faith in Jesus, we only receive his generosity. We end up getting credit for the work he has done as the better bridegroom on our behalf, on the cross, and through his resurrection. All of our failures, our sins, our misdeeds are paid for. They're no longer held against us. And instead, by faith in him and what he has done on our behalf, we receive 
and inherit the gift of the life and the joy of new creation through his death and resurrection. It's hard to believe (laughs) that we're in mid-October and it won't be long when we will once again be singing one of George Handel's most beloved songs, Joy to the World. (laughs) Now, famous Carol, you'll remember the line he writes, he comes, Jesus comes, to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. That, my friend, is the basis for living into a life of joy that Jesus has already begun and is now rewriting the script and that all that is sad will one day come untrue, starting with our own hearts, the brokenness that remains there and then penetrating throughout all the earth. And so for that reason, brothers and sisters in Christ, we of all people in the world right now should be experts at celebration. We should be experts at gratitude. We should be experts at joy while also resisting attitudes of complaint and cynicism. (laughs) Our lives, our attitudes, our hearts to a watching world needs to hear, needs to see, needs to experience more joy, genuine joy. May we be that type of people to our neighbors. May New City be that type of church to your community. For Christ's sake, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do give you thanks for the work that has been done on our behalf through your Son, who is the greater bridegroom through whose work we end up getting credit that we don't deserve. (laughs) May that reality be more and more that which stirs our hearts to a posture of joy. Even in a world that is still very much broken (laughs) and fallen. May we be, may we, be your signposts, not of critique and criticism, but of genuine joy and where that joy can be found. Give us that courage, starting with our own hearts and our own lives, ourselves first, and then give us the courage to embody that to those around us. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.